Well, you've already probably turned to Deuteronomy. That's where we're going again today. We really made progress yesterday, got through one chapter. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I, I do not want to hasten it, as I said, though, because uh, let's take whatever time we need. And maybe if it spills over after the feast, we can finish it then. Because uh, I know when we speed things up and just rush through it, we, we just don't get the meat and the meaning of it the same way. And this is certainly very, very important for us. <clears throat> so chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, they had been staying in Kadesh Barnea for some time. And uh, Moses had said, it's time to move. And here, here again, he is in history uh, reminding them of things that they had done. It says, then we turn. So he's speaking of the past. He's not speaking of what they were doing at this moment. But before he gave the law and reiterated all of those things, he was giving them this history of what they had done because he wanted it to be firmly entrenched in their minds before he began to review the things that God had given them in the past. Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Eternal spoke to me, and we compassed Mount Seir many days. And the Eternal spoke to me, saying, You have compassed this mountain long enough, turn you northward, and command you the people, saying, You are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take you good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Sometimes you have to be careful when people are afraid of you. Uh, corner an animal or a snake that might not be necessarily angry or dangerous unless it's cornered or confronted, and then it can turn dangerous. So he said, leave them alone, but be careful. They are your enemies, after all, and you have to be careful with your enemies. I've heard the saying many times, Stay close to your friends and even closer to your enemies. Uh, you need to know what they're doing because they may be planning your hurt. Who knows? Meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreadth. God had in mind specifically what he wanted his people to have, and it wasn't around Mount Seir or the Red Sea, which uh, I'm sure the setting of the Red Sea uh, it's probably not too far from here in this particular instance, uh, because I do believe they were back in this land by this time, if they had gone over to the Middle East and then come back. Uh, you shall buy meat of them for money that you may eat. You shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. So it was okay to have business with them, but be very wary of them. Be careful and don't do anything against them. Uh, Jacob had hurt Esau enough in the past, and Esau was already mad enough. So don't stir up a hornet's nest, is basically what's being said here. We might should take heed of some of those things as we move forward in prophecy to understand that we will have enemies and that we need to be careful how we handle them, that we don't misuse or abuse our enemies. In fact, Christ tells us to love our enemies and do good to those that despitefully use us and persecute us. So we have to be careful uh, and not meddle with them, but do what God wants us to do. We need to have a clear view of what God desires of us, both as Christians and in His work that He is doing here at the end time. Uh, 
And I remind you that we have a two-pronged job, at least two-pronged. One is to build the spiritual church, and the other is to finish the work of God. Uh, We may have to do some of it by default, because others simply don't understand or won't step up to the plate and do anything. So it may fall on us to lead some of these things. And maybe God is giving us the information we're achieve or receiving in order that we might do that. I don't know how that will turn out. I just hope that we can be what we need to be so that if God needs us to do something, we are qualified and capable and ready to do so. We need to put ourselves in a position to be able to help in whatever form uh, He wants us to perform. I don't want to try to do anything presumptuously or against his will or that he might have someone else in line for, but at the same time, I don't want to lag back and say, well, uh, we shouldn't do that. There is a balance there in seeking God to see what he wants done. I know he wants us to be Christians. That much I know. And then secondarily, what he has for us that he might do and use us for if we meet the first mark, uh, will soon be seen, one way or another. But if we are involved, I guarantee you there will be enemies. There will always be enemies of God's people. And we know that the whole world will finally turn to be the enemy of God's people. Okay, verse 7. For the eternal your God has blessed you in all the works of your hand. He knows you're walking through this great wilderness. These 40 years, eternal your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. And I do believe that God has been with the church in this end time. He set Israel up to do what he wanted them to do in the Old Testament. He was with the early New Testament church after he had formed it. Everything did not go exactly as they would have wanted or planned either, did it, as you read through the New Testament. That early New Testament church lasted about 70 years. There were all kinds of miracles and and things that happened in the beginning, uh, but they had their trials and their troubles and their droughts and their famine and their sicknesses and their deaths, their trials, their troubles. Uh, Leaders were put in jail, were stoned, were... Uh, eventually martyred, uh, many of them. So, but God was with them, wasn't he? All the way through. He was with John right at the very end when he wrote the book of Revelation. So he had not gone away from them, had not forsaken them, was still very much concerned for them, but he had his purpose and his plans. And we have seen already part of his purpose and plan for us at the end, that his people would be an example to the world and that they would be overrun at some point and have to flee to Zion for a place of safety. And he would protect them there three and a half years while a message goes out against the world. And then the leaders of that will be killed. And then three and a half days later, the resurrection. So the plan is pretty well laid out ahead of us as to what is to occur with God's church here in the end. And those who are in the tribulation will suffer persecution and all kinds of trouble and then martyrdom. And those who are protected will be safe from that. And that's where I would like all of us and others to be.
So we need to be careful uh, and not push at those who would be enemies. We know that the Edomites here in the end time are going to be one of the worst enemies who are going to help oversee the destruction of this country. And that is well in process at this point. For the eternal your God has blessed you in all the works of your walking. He's been with you. Verse 8, And when we passed by from our brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, through the way of the plain from Elath, and from Ezion-Gabar, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. And the Eternal said to me, Distress not the Moabites. You're going to go by them. Uh, there was going to be a time for them to fight. But the time wasn't when they might choose to fight whom they wished to choose. It was for God to select that. He picked their battles. So he told them, Don't distress the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give you of their land for a possession, because I have given R to the children of Lot for a possession. So God knows exactly where he wants his people, and he knows exactly where he doesn't want his people. This is not a happenstance thing that God is doing. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. God knows exactly where he wants his people, where he wants them to set up what they are going to do here at the end. And he does not want us going where he doesn't want us. He wants us exactly where he wants us. Where he has placed his name, he wants his people to be. So rest assured, God knows precisely. This is written for us as an example. The M.M.s dwelt there in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims. So there were giants in the earth in those days. That story starts in Genesis 6, I believe it is, where uh, they began to inbreed, not demons with women, but the giants of different races. It makes it very clear there that Noah's pedigree was pure. He had not intermarried. But there were those who did intermarry with them. It has been uh, postulated by, I remember Dr. Hayes saying it many, many years ago, decades ago, that he felt that Cain was a black man out of Eve, that Eve worshipped him as God and looked to him that way. And he may have been quite tall too, possibly. Uh, killed his brother but Eve worshipped him. So that was the referral there in Genesis 6 when it said the sons of God, meaning the God Cain that they looked to, uh, not demons. Christ very clearly says that they cannot marry or they are not sexually capable. So it wasn't that, but there were giants in the land who were human. And we'll see what happened to them here in just a few minutes. I think that that was an interracial situation there in Genesis 6, partially because it says right there, right afterward, that uh, um, Noah was of perfect pedigree or ancestry. There had not been intermarriage prior to that in his family, but probably in all the other families of the earth, because God points out in particular. But we'll see as we go on down here that Ham... Uh, was uh, of the black ancestry, as was his son 
Cush, Nimrod was, followed in the, land of, in the line of Ham. The Amorites were, and the Jebusites were. I just read in Genesis 10 this morning. Uh, the Jebusites were the ones who controlled the place that would become Jerusalem. They named it something similar, uh, being Jebusites, to Jerusalem. It wasn't quite the same, but it had the same ring to it. I don't remember the exact word now. Uh, but God named Jerusalem through the line of Ham, and they were there before Israel ever got there. The Philistine were of Ham as well, or the Philistines, it says there in Genesis 10. You go back to those tables of genealogies, and sometimes you read through them and think, well, this isn't important. What could this mean to me? Well, I, now as we get into some of these things, those tables of who came from whom uh, could be very, very important to understand what went on. Verse 11, uh, speaking of the Anakims of people tall, which also were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites called them Emims. So some called them Anakims, others called them Emims, but there was a race of giants on the earth. The Horims also dwelt in Seir before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead, as Israel did to the land of his possession, which the Eternal gave to them. So you see, Abram was sent to a different land, and there were already people there of the Jebusites, the Amorites, and they supplanted them, took their place. Now rise up, said I, and get you over the book of Zered. Now this had not yet happened uh, when they came out of the wilderness. He was just getting ready to send them in. And we went over the brook Zered, and the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea. That's very interesting. Let me back up just a minute here. There was a time that they had already supplanted those in the land. And they were about to supplant some more people there when they went back into the promised land. So that shows that they had been there before, and had left, and had come back at this point. I'll have to think that through. That just kind of struck me as I, as I read over it. Anyway, verse 14, In the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea until we were come over the brook Zered was thirty-eight years, until all the generations of the men of war were wasted out from among the host as the Eternal swore to them. So he had prophesied they'd die in the desert, and they had. They'd been out there thirty-eight years and when they had finished that. For indeed the hand of the Eternal was against them, to destroy them from among the host until they were consumed. Now he had just told them that God was with them in all those forty years, hadn't he? And yet at the same time, God was against those who had rebelled and murmured and complained and caused them to die out before he let the younger generation go in. It wasn't that he wasn't with them, it was that he had a particular purpose and a particular punishment on some of them. He didn't, didn't throw the plan away. He just went to plan B when plan A murmured. Now that could happen again. We had better not murmur or complain or rebel. We had better be enduring to the end and doing whatever it is that God wants us to do. 
Otherwise, you know, you come to the wedding supper and you have again a situation where he goes from plan A to plan B. These didn't come properly attired. They didn't overcome and grow. Kick them out and bring some others in off the street that are better than they are. God is capable of doing these things. Verse 16, So it came to pass, when all the men of war were consumed and dead from among the people, that the Eternal spoke to me, saying, You are to pass over through Ar, the coast of Moab, this day. They're going to proceed forward instead of wandering it from that point on. <coughs> and when you come near over against the children of Ammon, Distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give you the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I've given it to the children of Lot for a possession. Uh, Abraham and Lot had parted company, and uh, Abraham had given Lot his choice, and God honored and backed that up. He said, I'm going to let Lot keep his land. That also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt therein in old time, so... From the period we're speaking of before they went into the land, all the way back, there had been giants in the land. And the Ammonites called them Zamims, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims. But the Eternal destroyed them before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead. So the giants essentially had been wiped out and killed. Goliath was one that David took care of, but there were a race of them that had gone back a long time, and they were destroyed, it says here. They didn't marry women and flit off into the heavens. How did a half-woman, half-demon, or a half-human, half-spirit dwell in outer space? If you're half-human, you might have to breathe. I mean, some of the things that people have come up with are just absolutely, utterly ridiculous. The Bible gives the account of what actually happened. The Lord destroyed them before them. Okay, verse 22. As he did to the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites, or Horems, from before them. And they succeeded them, and dwelt in their stead even to this day. Though he's laying the background of history here, you know, God took care of some of your enemies. He supplanted them with others. God caused them to be destroyed. And the Avims, which dwelt in Hatzerim, even unto Asa, the Kaphtarims, which came forth out of Kaphtor, destroyed them and dwelt in their stead. So this had happened over and over again to different peoples that God wanted someone else there. So then he says in verse 24, Rise you up, take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon. That word means hope, the river of hope. We hope we get to the other side and we hope there's blessing there. That could have some meaning for us today as well. It's mentioned, I think, also in Isaiah 15 or 16. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land began to possess it and contend with him in battle. This day will I begin to put the dread of you and the fear of you upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Kedemoth unto Sihon king of Heshbon with words of peace, saying, 
Let me pass through your land. I will go along by the highway. I will neither turn into the right hand nor to the left. You shall sell me meat for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only I will pass through on my feet. I'll just walk through on the edge of your land, on the road. I won't get off. As the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, and the Moabites, which dwelt in, dwell in Ar, did to me, until I shall pass over Jordan into the land which the eternal our God gives us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the eternal your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into your hands as appears this day. So God could cause people to be hardened against them and to fight them, if he so chose. And sometimes he did. You know, sometimes we look at it and say, well, what happened to you, God? Why are you doing this to us? Well... Sometimes he wants us to have trouble because it helps us repent, it helps us change, helps us grow, helps us move forward. It sharpens us, it strengthens us when we win. As they've always said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. (laughs) So God sometimes does those things and it isn't always, I mean we always have to examine ourselves, is this a punishment from God because of what I think or do? Or is it something God brought on to try and to test and make us stronger? And sometimes that's what it is. It isn't necessarily punishment. Sometimes that's true, but not always. Let's see. Verse 31, I guess it is. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sidon, or Sihon and his land before you. Begin to possess, that you may inherit his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Jahaz. And the Eternal, our God, delivered him before us. So he had told them, Don't fight these, don't fight these. Now I want you to fight these. And God delivered them. Smote him and his sons and all his people. And we took all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men and the women and the little ones of every city. We left none to remain. Only the cattle we took for a prey unto ourselves and the spoil of the cities which we took. From Aroer, which is by the brink of the river of Arnon, and from the city that is by the river, even to Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. The Eternal, our God, delivered all to us. He's telling us, you know... God has taken care of us before. There are challenges ahead, but God has always taken care of us. Now, here we sit today at the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been through a lot, haven't we? We've been through an end-time church that came apart. We've seen false ministers, false prophets enter. We've seen people turn against God. We've seen destruction all around us. And yet here we remain. There have been enemies come against us. Satan, his demons, and men who have tried to destroy everything that Herbert Armstrong and others built. And even some who took leadership positions tried to destroy the church and took took away a great deal of it back into Protestantism. Worshipping they know not what. But he didn't do that to you. Here you are. We've survived. 
so far. But this is encouraging that God can bring us through. If we're faithful, we'll be part of the faithful remnant, those who survive. Verse 37, Only to the land of the children of Ammon you came not, nor into any place of the river Jabbok, nor unto the cities in the mountains, nor unto whatsoever the eternal our God forbade us. Then, still recounting their history, Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. And the children said to me, or Edri, actually, and the children said to me, Fear him not. Did I say children? Lord, I still can't talk. The Lord said to me, Fear him not, for I will deliver him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do unto him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. So the Eternal our God delivered into our hands Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we smote him till none was left to him remaining. Everyone that was with Og, the king of Bashan, they killed. Okay, you get that? That's important here in a minute. We took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we took not from them. Three score cities, sixty of them. All the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars, beside unwalled towns a great many. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the cattle and the spoil of the cities we took for a prey to ourselves. And we took at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites the land that was on this side Jordan from the river of Arnon to Mount Hermon. Which Hermon? The Sidonians called Sirion and the Amorites called it Shinir. All the cities of the plain and all Gilead and all Bashan unto Salca and Edrai, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. There had been giants long ago, it says, and God destroyed many of them at the first part of this chapter, and only Og and his people remained of the giants. And they utterly destroyed and killed them all. Only Og remained. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Big heavy boy. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it after the cubit of a man. So his bed was about six feet by thirteen and a half feet. That's a big bed. I suspect that he was close to 13 feet tall. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had a bed a little longer than he was. Now, that was the last of the giants. The race of giants had all been destroyed by God or by Israel, and Og was the last to go, and he had no relatives remaining. Men, women, and children were all wiped out. 
Now put that together with Genesis 6 and understand that there were giants in the earth in those days. They didn't marry demons. They were all finally killed off. God saw to it that that happened. End of that story. And this land which we possessed at that time from Aroer, which is by the river Arnon, and half Mount Gilead, and the cities thereof, gave I to the Reubenites, Reubenites and to the Gadites. And the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, being the kingdom of Og, gave I unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the region of Argob with all Bashan, which was called the land of giants. Oh, I was going to comment on there about the land of giants and Og being such a huge man. Uh, we have a place north of Salt Lake I mentioned yesterday called Ogden, or Ogden, Utah. Uh, and there are petroglyphs in Utah showing tall people along with short people. And I don't think that all those petroglyphs have to do with the fact that some were close in history and others were far away. That has its application, I'm sure, in petroglyphs showing passage of time. But I think that some of them obviously then have to show that there was a shorter race of people, normal size, and then there were giants in the land. So those petroglyphs very likely go clear back to this time, and perhaps those stories were recounted, and some of the petroglyphs may have been made after the giants were gone. I don't know. But there is evidence that there were giants right here in this area, and that they were then all killed out by the Israelites. Anyway, says verse 15, And I gave Gilead to Machir, and of the Reubenites, and of the Gadites, I gave from Gilead even to the river Arnon, half the valley, uh, even to the river Jabbok, which is the border of the children of Ammon. The plain and Jordan and the coast thereof, from Chinnereth, even to the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, under Ashdoth Pisgah, eastward. So, uh, if that was in this country, we do have the Salt Sea with the Great Plain around it up in northern Utah, and we have the Little Salt Lake here in southern Utah. And there is a plain around both of them. The plain around the Great Salt Lake goes clear out to the Nevada border and beyond. But uh, this one down here closer to Cedar City is much smaller, called the Little Salt Lake as opposed to the Great Salt Lake. So some of those geographical things are here, as well as over there with the Dead Sea. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Eternal your God has given you this land to possess it. You shall pass over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel, all that are meet for the war. But your wives, your little ones, and your cattle, for I know you have much cattle, shall abide in your cities which I have given you. Until the Eternal have given rest to your brethren as well as to you, and until they also possess the land which the Eternal your God has given them beyond Jordan, and then shall you return every man to his possession which I have given you. Land would be divided up the way he had said. And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Eternal your God has done to these two kings. So shall the Eternal do to all the kingdoms where you pass. So he told the one who was to do the leading from this point forward what God had done how he, and how Joshua had seen it happen, 
all the works of that era, and then that God would take care of things the same way he had in the past. So it's very encouraging, I'm sure, for Joshua to hear this. And he said, you shall not fear them, for the eternal your God, he shall fight for you. Now in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and all the prophecies, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all the prophecies of this end time, God says the same thing. Don't fear, be of good courage and work. Do what I have given you to do. So we have to heed these words that God gave way back then. Because the pattern repeats. History repeats itself. And God does the same things with his people over and over again. And that's what is being rehearsed here. God did it before. He'll do it again. So we read it and say God did it before and before and before and before. Now he's going to do it again. We have an even greater body of history. Now, we have what happened to Israel after they went into the Promised Land. We have their history up till Christ. We have the history of the early New Testament church. And more and more stories of how God took care of his people and prepared them, and they did his work. We also have, even recently, in the memory of many of us here, a work done to call many people at the end of this age to God's way, and then we saw it taken apart and tried and tested and destroyed, and now we see from that a very small remnant beginning to emerge who are working hard at doing what God wants done. So it's being repeated, and it's going to get more dramatic as time goes on. I besought the Eternal at that time, saying in verse 24, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. Moses recognized the beginnings of deliverance, of God starting to do something. Uh, We should not be unaware, should we, of what God might be doing. Moses observed, he watched, he saw, he analyzed, and we should be doing the same. We should be looking at what's going on and seeing where we might find God's hand in what is happening. Now, there's the other side of the coin where people say, God is only working through me. There are a lot of organizations that say that of themselves, either the individual man or the group itself. God is only working here. And that is a dangerous position to take. Now, you and I all know, and we see God's hand in our lives and what we're doing, but we are by no means the only ones he is working with. He said he's going to call a remnant of faithful people from all over the world. So he obviously is working with them right now. Now, I suspect they may come here, But I don't know that for sure, and that depends on whether we do our job or not. If not, he has a plan B. It is not wrong to seek out and understand what God might be doing, as Moses did. But then we need to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think either. And understand always that we need to be humble and meek and ready to serve and give and help wherever God can use us to do so.
That's the proper attitude to have. Anyway, he said, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to your works and according to your might? There's the one to fear. There's the one to look to. Who else can do what God can do? Nobody can. And he can stop evil from happening wherever and whenever he so chooses. Satan would have blotted every one of us out and killed us all by now if God permitted it. His hands are tied. He can only go before God's throne, and he does, and whine and complain and judge and accuse. But God will not let him come kill us, which is what he desperately wishes to do. And when he is kicked down for the last time in Revelation 12, the very first thing he is going to do is come after you and me. That will be his number one priority, is kill those people. And we will have to flee for our very lives. So understand, we may have our trials and troubles and difficulties and weaknesses and everything else that goes with being human. But if it weren't for Almighty God, and no one can do what He can do, you and I would not be sitting here today. Verse 25, I pray you, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. But the Eternal was angry with me for your sakes and would not hear me. Now Moses was one of the people that God had been the very closest to in history, and that remains true to this day. There are not many people that God has spoken with eyeball to eyeball, and Moses was one of them. And yet because of a transgression, God would not let him go over, as close as he was to it, and as high as Moses will be in the government of God in the world tomorrow. There was something physical on this earth he was not allowed to do because of the sin that was involved. So he said he wouldn't hear him, and the Lord said to me, Let it suffice you, speak no more to me of this matter. That didn't happen very often, but remember Paul as well, said he besought God three times for healing. And God said, No, Paul, you're going to have to bear this. Forget it. God had his reasons for Paul being the way he was. So he says, get you up into the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and behold it with your eyes. So he told him to go on top of the mountain. He says, you're right on the verge of going into the promised land and I want you to get up on top of the mountain and look all around 360 degrees. For you shall not go over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you shall see. So he led them right to the edge, told him to go to the top of the mountain. At least, I won't let you go in, but I want you to go up there and have a look at where the people are going. You're not taking them, but Joshua is. 
So we abode in the valley over against Beth Peor. Now therefore hearken, O Israel, to the judgments, and to the statutes, and to the judgments which I teach you, for to do them, that you may live, and go in, and possess the land which the eternal God of your fathers gives you. There were strings attached. They weren't just going to be given the land just because they were nice guys. They were going to be given the land, and it had strings attached. It had to be a godly land. They had to live by the laws of God. Now, if God gives us the promises that I read in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other places, there are strings attached. We must live godly before Him. And that is true right here, already and now. We have come out of this Babylon. We are told not to fellowship with it, not to make friends of it, not to be going out all over the place and having social interaction with it. But we are to be apart and separate from it. We are to come here and live godly lives, keeping His laws and His statutes. Because God gave us this land we're on, and I think He's going to give us more. But only if we obey. You shall not add to the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish anything from it. You can't pick and choose what you want to do, but you must keep all the words of God. Now, if you want to be a part of what God is doing, you have to listen to all his instruction and you have to follow it. You can't do your own thing. You have to do God's thing. Is that clear? We say no one will tell me what to do. God does. Now, he allows you to be a free moral agent. And he will allow you to interact with this world. He will allow you to go out there and date and socialize and do all those things. But if you do, he will separate you out before he blesses and protects his people. He did that anciently with Israel. Those who rebelled against him, those who were anarchists, those who decided they knew better for themselves what they should be doing, he separated out and he destroyed. He said he will purge the rebels from among us there in Ezekiel, speaking of this day and time. So, no, you don't have to do what God says. But if you don't do what God says, you will be in serious and deep trouble with Him. So make up your mind. There is not a lot of time left to make up your mind. Either choose God in His way or choose this world. And if you choose this world, God help you. And if you choose God's way, God help you. 
And if you choose the world's way, God won't help you. That's what you'll wish at some point, but he won't. And you will die. So you don't have to do it God's way. Just understand what will happen if you do it the world's or your way. There is space for repentance. I don't know how much. I don't know how long. God keeps that to himself. For those of us who are parents and have our children who grew up in the church and they're out in the world, he does make several promises that he will deliver our seed and take care of them. He doesn't say how. He doesn't really even say when. Whether he will bring them in and let them miss the tribulation and they'll repent ahead of time, I don't know. Or whether they will go into the tribulation and die a horrible death and come up in the second resurrection and be saved then could be what God means. Or they may go into the tribulation and they may live through it and repent and turn to God during the millennium. They may even be leaders then. I don't know when he says, I will save your children, what he means by that. I believe it. I love my children. But they're not going God's way right now. And I don't know when. He says he'll save them if I'll obey. He'll sanctify them and set them apart for my obedience. But he doesn't tell me exactly when he's going to save them. So I don't know what they'll have to go through. I guess it really in the long run, except for the pain and heart of seeing them suffer, it matters. Because if he saves them in the long run, they're saved. And that's all that really matters. I can't save them. I can't convert them. I can't even, for the most part, talk to them. Because they will ignore what I have to say. Dad, you know. So we can't add to or diminish anything. We have to follow it. That you may keep the commandments of the eternal, which your God, of, of your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the eternal did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the eternal your God has destroyed them from among you. Well, that's, I didn't know that verse was there, but it echoes what I just said. But you did, you that did cleave to the eternal your God are alive, every one of you, this day. Why do I digress and tell the story if I just kept reading? It's all in here. God says it. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the eternal my God commanded me, that you should do so in the land where you go to possess it. So he's telling them now, you're going into the land you better pay attention to God's words, all of them. Keep, therefore, and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. <coughs> if we will obey, we'll do it God's way. We will have a peaceful, good society. And at some point, this world is going to look around and say, Man, I wish we had lived the way they are. Look at them compared to us. That is before us. Here is our opportunity. 
For what nation is there so great who has God so near to them as the Lord our God, as in all things that we call upon Him for? You know, we may seem to have our troubles, but you name any other peoples around the world that have the hope, the satisfaction, the peace, the opportunity that we have. Where are they? There are none. Other than those few that God is working with who have the same spirit and mind and attitude that we do. And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? The law of God is the key. And yet, most of Israel has said the law is done away with as part of their religion. All the religions of Israel today, except God's true religion, essentially believe the laws are done away with. Only take heed to yourself, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But teach them your sons, and your sons' sons. We are to teach our children and our grandchildren the ways of God and the history of what God has done. That's partly what Moses was doing here, was teaching that himself. Especially the day that you stood before the Eternal your God in Horeb, when the Eternal said to me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. And you came near and stood under the mountain, under Sinai, Horeb. And the mountain burned with fire to the, into the midst of heaven, with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. And the Eternal spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only you heard a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Eternal commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might do them in the land where you go over to possess it. Take you, therefore, good heed to yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Eternal spoke to you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. And lest you lift up your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven should be driven to worship them and serve them, which the eternal your God has divided into all nations under the whole heaven. But the eternal has taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance, as you are this day. They were about to inherit the land. Furthermore, the Eternal was angry with me for your sakes, and swore that I should not go over Jordan, and that I should not go into that good land which Eternal your God gives you for inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not go over Jordan, but you shall go over and possess that good land. They went in, they took it, Later, a temple was built, Solomon's temple. 
Israel was up and down and all over the map and obeying God and disobeying God. And finally they were taken into captivity again. Now, I do believe that God wants us. I'm believing this more and more all the time. I'm not 100% sure of it. But I believe He wants us to build not only a spiritual but also a physical temple. And that temple must be in the original spot the Holy Land, Jerusalem. God may be showing us that. So we are set to go into the good land that God originally promised. We're in the same position these people were in then. So these words have great and deep meaning for us, far beyond anything we ever understood in Worldwide Church of God. It was not for worldwide to do that. That was a calling. Now there is a choosing going on. And God is selecting people from all over the world to come and build His temple. And it can't be just anywhere. It has to be in the right spot. Where is the right spot? You may know, there are very few people that do know. Very few. Others will have to find out. So he said he had, couldn't go over Jordan, verse 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the eternal your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the eternal your God has forbidden you. An idol, then, is really anything that comes between us and God. It doesn't have to be a sun or a moon or a planet. It doesn't have to be a male or a female likeness that we might make out of some material. It can be a computer. It can be a television. It can be a book. It can be anything that causes our time to be spent and wasted and we lose sight of God. That which keeps us from reading and understanding and remembering His words and prayer to Him and worship of Him. Anything that gets between us and God is an idol. Even your job can become an idol. Some people work it, maybe they have their own business, and they work at it long hours per day, and then they're too tired to devote any time really to God then it has become an idol because it takes the time not only for the business, which is a legitimate use. We should have business. We should have concourse. We should make a living. But if we spend so much time at that that we don't have time to devote to God, then it becomes something between us and Him and becomes an idol. So we have to be careful and keep all things in balance. For the eternal your God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. So he says, don't put anything before him, and remember that he is jealous, and he is a consuming fire, and he consumed some people in fire when they rebelled against him. When you shall beget children, and children's children, and you shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, <laughs> he's speaking as if it's going to happen, isn't he? He had lived with these people for 40 years. He knew them pretty well. He knew their fathers and their mothers.
You and, and, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image, or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the eternal your God, to provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land, whereunto you go over to Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall be utterly destroyed. And they did what Moses predicted here. They went into the land. They looked around and said, oh, this is wonderful. God has blessed us. And then over a short, fairly, fairly short period of time, they began to relax, depart from God, and went into captivity. God gave that opportunity again when he brought us back into this land of Ephraim. The pilgrims came in. They had a chance to make a fresh start. Some of them even kept the Sabbath and holy days, and Christmas was illegal. Some of them understood the truth of God, at least to some extent. But it wasn't long until they were overwhelmed by those who wanted to do their thing in this new land, and we have now become such an immoral, corrupt, ungodly people that God is about to destroy this land from before our eyes. Predictable. Only a few, dear brethren, are going to survive. Only a few are going to be protected. Can we be some of them? I plead with you. I plead with me. Let us do what we're supposed to do. Let's be protected. Let's be under God's blessing and mercy. If you go with the world and you try to straddle the fence and you try to do both, it can't happen. God does not want half-heartedness. We have witnessed the destruction of the church of God because of half-heartedness, because of compromising with the world. We have a chance to succeed now and not be that way. He said, you'll find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Not half after the world and, oh, well, okay, I'll go to church. You young people need to think about this, too. You're tempted? Don't go there. You will die with the world if you go there. That's just the way it is. It's the way it always has been. It's the way it's going to continue to be. I'm not trying to put anybody down in saying that. I'm trying to get you to think deeply about where we are and understand that we are at a sea change. We are at a time when everything is going to be different. And you can come up on the good side, still breathing air, when the waves have come over, or you can be pummeled underneath 
and be dead on the shore. And it's up to you. I want you to live. I want you to be there. I want you to be, if not converted in this day and age, I want you to live through and be in the millennium and live in a peaceful, happy time when you can raise families and enjoy the bounty that God is going to give to Israel in that day. Don't miss it. It'll be the most exciting time in history to repopulate, to rebuild, to pioneer. You know, I always thought when I was a kid, I I wanted to be a pioneer. I wanted to be a trapper. I wanted to be a mountain man. I wanted to go out and build myself a log cabin on a lake somewhere Mm -hmm. and trap and raise my family and, and live off deer and elk and moose and so on, and God let me get on the edge of those. Those days were gone, but I did build log cabins on lakes and on the mountains. I got to do some of those things, and I wouldn't take for it. But you have opportunity to truly pioneer a whole new world. And America did it wrong. I've been watching a little bit the last few days when I've had a chance a whole series of very well-done movies on the national parks and how they were developed and the political problems that went with it. And they've recounted how we were destroying, almost extinguished the buffalo, almost extinguished the antelope. We almost destroyed all our forests and cut down all the sequoias and the redwoods. We almost completely ruined this land before some stood up and said, hey, wait a minute. Now it's going to be rebuilt, redone. And it's going to be done by people who have in mind to build, not destroy, out of human greed. And all the destruction that is about to occur on this earth is going to be healed, fixed, and you can oversee some of that And you can make sure that the whole world is like a national park. That it's all taken proper care of and is vibrant and beautiful and productive. And God will take away the thorns and the snakes and the scorpions and all those things that make life difficult. And he's going to make it very productive and beautiful. And this time here today that we're spending in the Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of that time when Christ and His bride will rule the earth for a thousand years. That's us with Him. And we will show how it is to be done. We will be in control and in charge of the entire earth. The true New World Order. These days picture when Christ and His bride are going to produce a family. And it will be a family of all the nations and peoples of the earth who will have gone through such horror that they will be in a repentant, teachable, humble mood. What a blessing that is going to be. Well, this feast pictures that time of the family of God. If you want to get close to those who are going to be ruling, you better get close to your parents. They're going to be ruling. You might have an inside track, although they will be advised and admonished not to show favoritism 
but to be even-handed and fair at everything that they do. They went to the promised land then. We're about to enter into it again. Now, where in the world was I? Uh, Verse 24 tells you to teach your children. Verse 25. All right, let's go down to verse 26, I think. I call heaven and earth to witness against you that you shall soon utterly perish. I read that. And be destroyed. And the eternal shall scatter you among the nations, verse 27, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen where the eternal shall lead you. We're right on the edge of that happening again. We've already come into this land that was promised, and we have defiled it and almost destroyed it, and it is a mess today of bad air, bad cities, bad everything, and it is about to be destroyed. And there you shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. So this land is about to be taken away again for disobedience to God. But he's going to keep a few in the promised land to rebuild and to set an example for the world. But if from there you shall seek the eternal your God, when you go into captivity... You shall find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Maybe then you will live through into the millennium. Or if you truly repent and are martyred anyway, you'll come up in the great white throne judgment and have your opportunity then. Don't count on it. I've heard some young people say, well, I want to live the way I want to live. I want to do what I want to do. I'll take my chances in the second resurrection. God looks at the heart. You have to be careful in saying, I'm going to self-determine what I want to do, and I'll have my fun, and it'll all get taken care of. How much will God hold you accountable for what you already know? To whom much is given, much is required. So if you think you can get away with it and... Get one over on God. Think again. He knows. And he can read rebellion. Okay, let's read on. When you are in tribulation and all these things are come upon you, even in the latter days, if you turn to the eternal your God and shall be obedient to his voice, So Moses himself was inspired not to talk about just them going into the land, but what would happen in the latter days. Because God had already projected in his plan and in his mind what would happen today and where we would be. And here we are. And he says, destruction is coming. Turn to God and be obedient. For the eternal your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you, neither destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, (coughs) since the day that God created man upon the earth. He says, look all the way back to Adam and Eve. And ask from the one side of heaven to the other. Consider the whole universe. 
whether there has been any such thing as this great thing is or has been heard like it. God's great plan, which I've just been talking about here in the millennium and what is to come in the world tomorrow, and what God has done from Adam down till today with Israel, and what He is about to do with us based on the promises to us if we obey Him. There's never been anything like this. The things we've read about, brethren, about Him creating a little Eden, a garden of God, about protecting us with a wall of fire and a cover from the heat and all those things and gathering his remnant together. Who would believe such a thing? Most of the church of God would think I'm nuts in reading these prophecies and believing them. They think you're nuts for reading them and believing them. Well, there aren't many nuts, but I guess we're it. But if God said it, it'll happen. Everything he said from Adam on down has happened. And the last things he's talked about are going to happen as well. The good and the bad. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Some of them were little children at Mount Sinai. They saw these things. Or has God assayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Eternal your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Those were our ancestors. Does it make more sense when God says at the end time, look back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and David? Do we begin to understand a little more why He wants us to do that? Because the promises made to them are for us today. And the mistakes they made are for us to learn from today. And we are to repeat what they did today. As they were poised on the promised land, so are we. We must get ourselves ready for service and God's work. Verse 35, Unto you it was showed that you might know that the Eternal, He is God. There is none else beside Him. He's not showing the whole world that He's God now, but He's beginning to show us and His true people wherever they are around the world. I don't ever mean these comments I make to be exclusive to us. I always mean them to be exclusive to those around the world who understand God's ways and whom he is working with, whatever organization or lack thereof there is. Please understand that, and anyone else who hears this later on needs to understand that too. I'm not trying to hone in on us being the only ones. I don't believe that, and I don't mean that. But I'm talking to you specifically at the moment, so sometimes it may sound that way. But it is bigger than us. Verse 36, Out of heaven he made you to hear his voice, that he might instruct you. And upon earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. 
And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought you out into his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt to drive out nations from before you, greater and mightier than you are, to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. God is going to have to move some people around to give us the inheritance that is out there that we may build what he wants built here at the end time. Maybe a temple is a little bit in question, but I think Daniel makes it very clear that the walls of Jerusalem have to be built and 70 weeks after the order to build them is given for the city, not just the walls, but the city to be built is when the abomination is set up and we flee to a place of safety. So part of it has to be physical. Know therefore this day, and consider it in your heart, that the Lord, He is God in heaven above, and upon the earth beneath, there is none else. You shall keep, therefore, His statutes and His commandments, which I command you this day, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. So, not only today, but on into the millennium, and your children after you. And that you may prolong your days upon the earth, which eternal your God gives you forever. We live a certain physical span on this earth now, but there will be a resurrection and a change for those who are alive and remain. And we will rule the earth for a thousand years, and then it will turn into forevermore. Then Moses severed three cities on this side, Jordan, toward the sun rising to the east, that the slayer might flee there, which should kill his neighbor unaware, and hated not him in times past, and that fleeing into one of these cities he might live. He set up cities of refuge, uh, where if maybe you accidentally killed your neighbor, uh, and you truly were innocent, you could flee to one of these cities of refuge while they had time to sort out what had actually happened. Because then, if you were tried in a situation and found guilty, you were killed immediately. Not like today, where you sit on death row for 10 or 12 or 15 years. You were executed on the spot. So, in case injustices might be done, cities of refuge were made. Now, God, I think there is a, an end-time parallel to this. God is going to provide a city... Satan is going to adjudge us worthy of death. The new world order is going to assess and judge that we are worthy of death. And we will have to flee for our very lives until God sorts it out and lets them know, no, these aren't worthy of death. I've chosen them to live and you're going to die. And these are going to rule the earth. So God has set for us a city of refuge named Zion in the Bible, to go to. So the slayer might flee. Namely, Bezer in the wilderness in the plain country of the Reubenites, and Ramoth in Gilead of the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan of the Manassites. And this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came forth out of Egypt. 
On this side Jordan, in the valley over against Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwell at Heshbon, whom Moses and the children of Israel smote after they were come forth out of Egypt. And they possessed his land in the land of Og, the giant, the last giant, king of Bashan, two kings of the Amorites, which were on this side Jordan toward the sun rising. And from Aroer, which is by the bank of the river Arnon, and even to Mount Zion, which is Hermon. Now that's an interesting statement. We know Mount Zion, the joy of all the land, and now he equates Hermon with it and the snows of Hermon. Uh, probably right up here. It's high enough that there's snow every winter, and Hermon and Zion are attached. And all the plain on this side, Jordan, eastward, even unto the sea of the plain, under the springs of Pisgah. <coughs> well, we're almost to the end of this time, and we got through three chapters, amazingly. So let's stop right there until Tuesday.